Since I first put my faith in Jesus Christ, I've been given a whipping five times. 39 lashes each time. Three times, I was beaten with rods. Once, they even tried to stone me. I've been shipwrecked three times so far. I've been constantly on the move, never able to settle down. I've had to cross dangerous rivers, and I've regularly faced the threat of bandits on the road. I've faced persecution in every country I've visited. My life is almost constantly in danger, whether I'm in the city, or in the country, or at sea. People who claim to be my allies have tried to undermine and discredit me. Sometimes I've had to go without food and water. Sometimes I've had to sleep outside in the freezing cold. Often I've had to go without any sleep at all. And if all that weren't enough, every day my mind is weighed down with concern for the churches that I've pastored, some of which are already going off the rails since I left them. Well, as you'll have realized by now, those are not my words, and they're not my experiences, and I should be thankful, I guess, for that. Now, they're a a paraphrase of the words of the Apostle Paul, one of the first Christian missionaries. Paul's life was one of almost unremitting hardship. We know that from uh, the book of Acts, first of all, which we studied together throughout last year, and also from the many letters that he wrote that have been preserved for us in the New Testament. This was a man who was familiar with pain, poverty, frustration, and disappointment. And yet, despite all this hardship, all this opposition, Paul never gave up. He kept going, and kept going, and kept going. And so, as the end of his life approached, he could say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He never abandoned his faith in Jesus Christ. If anything, his faith grew stronger in the face of trouble. And the question that I want to ask tonight is, how can this be? How can this be? How on earth does this happen? How is it that Paul could keep going, could keep the faith, despite all these hardships that he faced? Physical hardships, emotional hardships, spiritual hardships. How did he keep the faith in the midst of all that? That's my first question. And my second question is this. Whatever it was that kept Paul going, whatever it was that sustained his faith, can it also work for us? Can it? Is it just for apostles? Or does it also apply to ordinary Christians like you and like me? I don't know whether 2008 was a good year for you. I don't know whether 2009 is likely to be a good year for you. Maybe you've already faced considerable hardship this past year. Maybe you're facing hardship right now. Maybe you're headed towards hardship, even if you don't know it right now. But whatever the case, I believe that each one of us can learn something very important from Paul's testimony 
and Paul's outlook on the Christian life as revealed to us in God's Word, the Bible. So the question, how do you keep going in the face of hardship? Well, the Bible gives us a number of answers to that question coming from different perspectives, and we can't look at all of them this evening. The most fundamental answer, surely, is that a follower of Jesus keeps going only by the grace of God, literally by the grace of God. It's not our strength, but it's God's strength working through our weakness. But God's grace, it doesn't work in us passively. We don't just lie back and it happens to us. The Holy Spirit doesn't bypass uh, our minds and our wills, but rather he works in them, through them, for our good. And so it is that we find the Bible exhorting us to, to direct our thoughts and to direct our actions in ways that will help us to take heart in times of hardship. And so with that in view, please turn with me to uh, the letter that Paul wrote, his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, where we find some remarkable insights from Paul's own experiences and his understanding of God's purposes for every Christian believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1160. 1160. It's what Paul writes. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are all, always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul probably wrote this letter around about 55 AD, after his stay in Ephesus, which we read about in Acts chapter 19. But before he he actually returned to Corinth, we read in uh, the first few verses of Acts chapter 20. And so when he says uh, later in this same letter that he's been shipwrecked three times, we know that he has at least one more shipwreck to come. Uh, I can almost imagine him as he neared the end of his ministry uh, that he would actually be wearing a life jacket before he got onto the ship. And the captain would say, what are you wearing that for? Don't ask. <laughs> but what's clear from this letter is that Paul was also facing considerable opposition to his ministry. Not just from Christians, but uh, not just from non-Christians, as he did face, but from professing Christians. Uh, rival teachers who were trying to lead astray the church that he planted in Corinth. And so in in the face of all these hardships, Paul had many reasons to be discouraged, even to give up altogether. But did you notice the phrase that appears twice in this chapter, once at the beginning and once near the end? We do not lose heart. Twice, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Why not? How did Paul take heart in times of hardship? Well, there are actually many reasons that we read in this uh, passage. We don't have time to look at them all, but I would encourage you, if you have the time, to read through it and pick out all the different reasons that Paul gives for why he doesn't lose, lose heart. There are lots of them in there. But what I want to particularly focus on tonight are the reasons that he gives in the last three verses of this passage. So look with me again at verses 16 through 18. For the second time, Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In essence, what Paul is saying here is that the spiritual transformation that God is working in us through hardships gives us reason to take heart despite those hardships. Let me repeat that, because there's a lot in it. The spiritual transformation God is working in us through hardships gives us reason to take heart despite those hardships. And Paul makes this point by way of three contrasts. Three contrasts that apply not only to him, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, but also to every Christian believer. And so the reasons why Paul does not lose heart are also reasons for us not to lose heart, whatever the world may throw at us. So look with me then at these three contrasts that Paul uses. The first contrast is between the outward and the inward. You see that? Verse 16, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed 
day by day. Paul here distinguishes between some outward aspect of our lives and some inward aspect. But what exactly is he talking about? Well, we might be tempted, perhaps at first glance, to think that he's talking about the body and the soul. uh, Our our outward physical body is aging, uh, wasting away, wearing out, but our inward spiritual soul is being renewed day by day. That would make sense, wouldn't it? But that's almost certainly not what Paul has in mind here. If he had meant to contrast the body with the soul, well, he could have used the normal Greek words for body and soul, but he didn't do that. And in any case, the idea uh, that the body is, is essentially bad, it's something that we need to get rid of, uh, leaving our, our purified souls behind, that's a, that's a pagan Greek idea. It's not the biblical view of human nature. Paul believed, of course, in the resurrection of the body, the renewal of the body. And so our bodies aren't the problem. Despite what you may feel whenever you go to the gym or whenever you briefly entertain the thought of one day going to the gym. No, our bodies are not the problem. Our sin is the problem. Sin has corrupted our whole being, both body and soul. And so God's purpose in Christ is to redeem and to renew our whole being, both body and soul. And so with that in mind, we can get some insight into what Paul is contrasting here. Perhaps a more literal translation of verse 16 would be, the outer person is wasting away, the inner person is being renewed. What we have here is uh, what I would call Paul's new creation theology, his new creation theology. Uh, Perhaps the best known verse in 2 Corinthians is chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The Bible teaches that when a person becomes a Christian, when they put their faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in them, a radical transformation occurs. It is as if they have become a new person. Now this uh, new creation theology doesn't mean that Christians are immediately made sinless and freed from all temptations and trials. Uh, It's true that we're no longer condemned by sin. We no longer have to uh, experience the guilt for our sin. We're forgiven. Uh, We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer in bondage to sin. But the fact remains that we still sin. And we still suffer the lingering effects of sin. And so there is this ongoing tension between the old person, uh, who we were before Christ and the new person, after Christ, or as as Paul more more frequently says, in Christ. We are in Christ. And it's that contrast between the old person and the new person, or the outer person and the inner person, that Paul highlights here in verse 16. What Paul is saying here is that the hardships that he and other Christians endure are part of the process of the outer person wasting away. Although it may not feel like it to us now, our painful trials only destroy those parts of us that are meant to be lost, not those parts of us that are meant to be saved. The hardships of life cannot harm the new creation. In fact, at the very 
at the very same time that the, the outer person is wasting away, the inner person is being renewed and purified and strengthened. The new creation is being prepared for its final home. And so, uh, when we are battered and disheartened by the hardships of life, hardships of whatever kind, we should remember what they signify. They're a confirmation that the vestiges of our life before Christ are being destroyed, and their confirmation that our new life in Christ is being brought to fruition and perfection. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Well, turn now then to the second contrast that Paul draws. The contrast between troubles and glory. Troubles and glory. Verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Troubles, glory. What's Paul talking about here? Well, I think the troubles are obvious enough. Paul's already said in verse 8 that he and his fellow workers are hard-pressed on every side. They're perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. The long list of Paul's sufferings that I, I used in my introduction is taken from chapter 11 of this same letter. The whippings, beatings, shipwrecks, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, all the rest of it. Then in chapter 12, he goes on to talk about some kind of satanic, satanic attack that, that has been made on him, which he, he describes as a thorn in his flesh. Uh, it may or may not have been a physical illness, scholars debate that, but it was certainly something that was very painful to him, very real. And so, in Paul's case, it's obvious what the troubles are. And for the rest of us, the troubles are usually obvious too. We know what they are, even if perhaps others don't. You may well be thinking about yours right now. Physical illness, financial difficulties, relationship problems, spiritual weaknesses, battles, whatever it may be. We know what the troubles are. But what about the glory? What about the glory that Paul speaks about? What does he mean? This is a bit trickier. Well, whatever it is, it has to contrast, doesn't it, with the troubles and in some sense compensate for them. That seems to be the idea. The troubles bring uh, great pain, but the glory brings great joy. But whose glory is it? Is it our glory? Or is it God's glory? Is Paul teaching that, that uh, we will become glorious in some way that will just wipe out all our troubles? Well, it is true that in another letter that Paul wrote, his letter to the Romans, Paul says that Christians will be glorified just as they have been justified by their faith in Jesus. All those who have been justified will be glorified. But what he means there is that we will be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. That's the context, being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Our glory will be an inherited glory, a reflected glory. It's the glory of Jesus experienced by us and reflected in us. And in fact, if we look back at verses 4 and 6 of our reading, we can see that the glory that Paul has in mind is indeed the glory of Jesus Christ. The gospel he preaches is the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
Not just the gospel of Christ, but the gospel of the glory of Christ. The end point of our salvation is a participation in the infinite glory of the Son of God. Wow. And the light that God has shone into our hearts is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Christ. Now, in biblical terms, if you're looking for a definition, the glory of God is uh, his splendor, his radiance, his, his majesty, his divine honor, his reputation. The glory of God is everything about him that leaves us uh, awestruck when we discover just who he is, what he is like, and what he has done. That's the glory of God. But note what Paul says. The glory of God is revealed to us in the face of Christ. Insofar as we know Jesus, we know the glory of God. And the wonderful promise of the Bible is that one day, one day we will see our Lord Jesus face to face without any limitations, without any hindrances, and then we will know and enjoy the glory of God in ways that we can barely imagine now. Now, with that in view, let's consider how Paul contrasts the troubles and the glory. What contrast does he make? The troubles, he says, are light and momentary, while the glory is weighty and eternal. You get that? The troubles are light and momentary. Wait a minute. Are you kidding, Paul? How can you say that whippings and beatings and shipwrecks and all the rest of it are only light troubles? How can you call them momentary when you've suffered them day in, day out for years upon years? And, well, maybe that's how your troubles feel to you, Paul. Uh, perhaps they're water off a duck's back to you, Paul. But my troubles don't feel in the least bit light and momentary. Quite the opposite. And as for this uh, eternal glory that I'm supposed to, to compare to my troubles, well, I'm not even sure I know what it is. I can barely grasp it. It's beyond my experience. How is it that this mysterious and unimaginable glory can make my troubles today feel light and momentary? You know, it would be very easy to dismiss Paul's words with thoughts like those, wouldn't it? But we need to be careful that we don't get Paul's logic back to front. The idea isn't that we, we just think about God's glory and then our troubles don't feel, uh, feel so bad after all. Like that line in that worship song that was popular some years ago. And in his presence our problems disappear. Well, it would be nice if it was true. No, that's not the idea. The idea is that we admit the full force of the hardships that we face and we say to ourselves, if God tells me in his word that these wretched troubles, these awful troubles are light and momentary compared with the glory that he has in store for us, then how incredible that glory is going to have to be. That's the logic. It's the very intensity of our present troubles that underscores how, un how inconceivably wonderful the glory will be. The greater the troubles, the even greater the glory. 
So it's not that our experiences of the glory teach us something about our troubles. It's that the experience of our troubles teaches us something about the glory. And it's not just that the troubles are outweighed by the glory, as if Paul's doing some sort of cost-benefit analysis. Well, here we have the troubles, here we have the glory. Glory is a lot weightier than that. Now, the incredible truth that Paul teaches in this verse is that our troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. Did you catch that? They are achieving for us an eternal glory. The troubles are actually part of the means by which God prepares us for eternal enjoyment of his glorious presence. So how does that work? Well, it would take a whole other sermon to delve into that, and that will have to wait for another occasion. You can fly me back next year, all expenses paid, and maybe I'll do that. But we don't need all the details to appreciate the point here. If the troubles are light and momentary compared to the glory, then the greater the troubles, the even greater the glory. If the troubles are in some remarkable way achieving for us an eternal glory, then the greater the troubles, the even greater the glory. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Well, finally, let's consider the third contrast that Paul draws at the end of this chapter. The contrast between what is seen and what is unseen. Verse 18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I said just a moment ago that it would would take a whole other sermon to explore just how our present troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. But in this last verse, Paul gives us some insight into how that happens. Because this final contrast between the seen and the unseen describes one of the ways in which our response to troubles is part of the means by which the eternal glory is achieved for us. Let me say that again. This final contrast describes one of the ways in which our response to the troubles is part of the means by which the eternal glory is achieved for us. Because it describes the kind of vision that we need to have in times of trouble. This point actually comes out a little bit more clearly in some other translations of these verses. Uh, Here's how the English Standard Version puts it. For this this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. It's as we look... beyond the seen, to the unseen, that the troubles achieve for us an eternal glory. But what are the seen and the unseen? Well, the the seen are primarily the troubles, our troubles, our hardships, of course. They're very visible to us. They're part of the physical world that we inhabit now, the world that we experience with our five senses. And so often, isn't it, our our troubles can seem all-consuming. They can dominate our outlook on life. You know, you you wake up in the morning, and the first conscious thought that comes into your head is, what? That illness, that financial difficulty, 
that broken relationship, that heartbreaking disappointment. So the scene includes our troubles, but more broadly, the scene is all our present world of sense experience. If ever there was a time and place in history where human beings were more preoccupied with the scene, it's surely here and now. Our society society is obsessed with the scene, what we can experience right now with our senses. It seems that nearly all our human efforts are directed towards achieving pleasure and happiness with the things that are seen, what we can see, hear, taste, touch, smell. It's all about sensory stimulation. Maximize pleasure, minimize pain. For most people... The scene is by far the most important aspect of reality. And indeed, for many people, the scene is the only reality. If you can't see it, it isn't real. It's a delusion. No wonder so many people today are functional atheists. But the Christian perspective could hardly be more different. God's Word tells us that if we want our troubles to achieve an eternal glory, we need to look beyond the seen to the unseen. We need to focus our attention on spiritual realities that may not be visible to the physical eye, but can be perceived by the spiritual eye. In other words, we we need to look with the eyes of faith rather than the eyes in our face. Sounds like a paradox, though, doesn't it? I mean, how on earth can you fix your eyes on what is unseen? You can't see it. Well, it's interesting. The word that Paul uses here, the word that is in the NIV translated fix our eyes, it means to fix your attention on something, to set your aim on it. Imagine a sailor fixing his gaze on the North Star so that he can navigate safely to his destination. He fixes his eyes on that distant star and not on the rolling waves all around him. Paul is saying that in times of hardship, we mustn't focus our attention on the immediately visible aspects of this world, precisely because they won't last. They're transient. They're wasting away like that outer person. Instead, we must focus our attention on those things that will endure eternally, even if they may not be visible to us now. In the first place, of course, we must fix our eyes on God himself, on the glory of God, on the glory of God in the face of Christ. Just as the book of Hebrews says, we must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And secondly, we we have to look beyond the surface to see the supernatural work that God is doing in us and around us. The works of grace in our own lives and in the lives of others. Those evidences of that inner person being renewed day by day. Greater love, greater kindness, greater humility greater hope, greater faith. 
doesn't come naturally to us to look for these things. It requires attention. It requires effort. You know, I, I sometimes wonder whether it would be good for Christians sometimes to climb into one of those sensory deprivation tanks so that we have no access at all to the seen and uh, we're forced to focus our attention on the unseen things. You know, we've been very much caught up in the mindset of the society that we live in. But I have to admit that's not a very practical suggestion. I think these things are kind of expensive and perhaps messy. But here's a better suggestion. You may be thinking, well, sure, I, I want to fix my eyes on Jesus. But it's hard to do that when I can't see him, I can't touch him, I can't hear him. How is it that I can develop these eyes of faith? The answer is right here in this book. In the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ comes to us through God's word, the Bible. Jesus is revealed to us in this book from cover to cover. You know, I guess that most of us here probably enjoy reading novels. Just think for a moment about the last novel that you read. I'm guessing it didn't have many pictures in it. If it had a lot of pictures in it, you might want to advance a bit in your reading. But I'll assume that the last novel that you had did not have many pictures in it. And yet, wasn't it true that as you read it, in a sense, you could see the characters and the events in the book? As you read, you, you entered into the world of the story. It took on a kind of reality for you in your mind's eye. Well, let me tell you, if that can happen when you read a human work of fiction, how much more will it happen when you read God's word of truth? Many of us have committed to reading through the Bible in a year using the Every Day with Jesus Bible. Can I encourage you right now to persevere with that? There'll be times you don't want to do it, but stick with it. And don't just read it. Don't just sit down out of duty. I've read it. Okay, that's it. Study it. Meditate on it. Pray over it until you see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Every book of the Bible teaches us something about the glorious salvation of God in Jesus Christ. And with perseverance and with the help of the Holy Spirit... It really can be every day with Jesus. By relying on God's word and God's spirit, we can look beyond the seen, which will pass away, to the unseen, which will last forever. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Well, let me draw to a conclusion by asking one final question. Who should take heart from this? From what we've been thinking about tonight, who should be taking heart from this? I mentioned in the interview uh, earlier that our house is currently on the market. Um, and you may have noticed that it isn't the best time in history to sell a house. I don't know if you picked up on that occasional news report about it. Uh, the predicted fall in property prices is uh, particularly disconcerting. 
However, it just so happened, as I was walking along the street one day last week, I saw a headline on a, a billboard outside a newsagent's which said, Scottish house prices buck UK trend. And uh, I have to admit that put a little spring in my step for maybe an hour or so. But of course, whether that headline is an encouragement to you depends very much on your own situation, doesn't it? If you're a house seller in Scotland, that would be an encouragement. But if you're a buyer, perhaps a first-time buyer trying to get on the property ladder, it's probably not so encouraging. It all depends where you currently stand. And a similar principle applies to what we've thought about tonight. Whether or not this message should be an encouragement to you depends very much on where you currently stand. If you are a Christian facing times of hardship, it should be an encouragement. Because the truths in these verses are truths for every Christian. Every believer is a new creation in Christ. Every believer will one day meet Jesus face to face. Every believer is being prepared for that eternal glory. But it should be a particular encouragement to you if you are involved in Christian ministry and you're facing hardship in that ministry. Because that was precisely Paul's own situation when he wrote this letter. And what he says here, he applies to himself, first of all. And so if you're in Christian ministry, and you're finding it hard, you're facing these troubles, God's word to you tonight is, don't lose heart. But if you're not a Christian, if you've never put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, then right now, right now, I cannot offer you that same encouragement, even if you are facing times of great hardship. Because what I've said applies only to those who have been radically transformed by faith in Jesus Christ. But I can offer you this. You can become one of those people tonight. You can become a new creation, destined for eternal glory. You can have a hope that will sustain you through the darkest times of life, whatever this coming year may bring you. All of God's wonderful promises can be yours tonight if you will only confess before him that you've gone your own way, but that now you want to live for him. If you simply put your trust in Jesus, who died and rose again to bring spiritually dead people like us back to life, to share in his glory forever. You will not get a better offer in 2009. Let's pray.